Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and James Bijan. Brian Motes, as usual, is helping us with recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out and making it available to you. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, we appreciate your uh, joining us for this podcast. want to remind you that if you want to get uh, access to back podcasts and series of podcasts that are organized into a podcast series, you can download our app, our Theopolis app. You can get access to a lot of material for free. You get a little more access if you are willing to put in your email address. And then if you pay $7 a month, you get past the paywall and you have access to everything that's there on the Theopolis app. Uh, and we're putting new things up every every week. Uh, Brian Motes is editing videos and audio and uh, short eBooks, and we're we're putting we're putting new material onto the app every week. So if you want to keep up with with new things that are emerging from Theopolis, then that's that's a good way to do it. So I encourage you to make use of that resource. I should also mention that we have uh, we're just a a month and a half away or so from our third annual. Theopolitan Ministry Conference, which is taking place on July 17th and 18th in Birmingham, Alabama. If you want to register for that, you can get on our website, theobolisinstitute.com, and you can scroll down to the bottom, and there's a a link that you can take to go to the conference registration, uh, and also a link to our feast. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary for Theopolis on the evening of July 18th right at the end of the conference. Uh, that's a separate registration if you want to join us for that event. This year's theme for the conference is the theme of of love. Last year, we did hope. This year, we're doing love, partly because we're in, uh, these are traditional you know, Pauline categories and traditional theological categories. These are the faith, hope, and love are the three theological virtues that were added to the traditional uh, natural virtues or classical virtues that come out of the Greek world. But Maybe more importantly, we're focusing on these themes because of uh, their the necessity to focus attention on them for uh, given our uh, given our moment in our in history, given our moment in our culture. Hope was an important theme to address when we were coming out of the far end of the pandemic and all the upheavals of the pandemic. Love is a I think an ongoing concern as we just obviously an ongoing concern for Christian living, but also an ongoing concern for our public witness and for our engagement with a culture that's gone on that's gone mad we're not given permission to abandon the Jesus command to love our neighbors and to love our enemies we can't say the stakes are too high and we need to just put love aside for a while while we while we fight these battles and once we get the battles fought then we can go back to love we have to fight in love and we have to fight out of love uh, and uh, that's what we'll be exploring, uh, various dimensions of that as we gather together in July. So I very much encourage you to sign up for that. Um, should be a great event. We have Alistair will be speaking there. Uh, we have Jeff Myers, a regular on our podcast, will also be speaking. Uh, James Wood, who is my co-host for the Civitas podcast that Theopolis sponsors, will be joining us. Uh, and we have uh, a number of Theopolis Fellows graduates who are pastors uh, who are going to be uh, giving giving lectures and talks during the during the conference. We'll be worshiping together. We'll be having a meal, meals together. So uh, a great time of fellowship and good time of encouragement and reflection on how we how do we love a world that we uh, at some level we abhor and rightly abhor. We abhor what's going on in our world and yet Jesus calls us to love it 
and to carry out a mission that in, that is motivated by love. How do we do that? And how do we do that faithfully? That's the topic for July. Today's topic is Deuteronomy 9, as we are making our way through the book of Deuteronomy uh, in this podcast series. This is part of the first commandment section. It continues to be part of the first commandment section of Deuteronomy. That section goes from uh, chapter 6 through chapter 11 of Deuteronomy and explores various facets of uh, of the command to not have other gods before uh, the Lord our God, the God of the Exodus. Chapter 9 does hold together uh, as a as a unit in certain ways. Uh, there's a, an exhortation concerning entry into the land and facing the nations that are greater and mightier than Israel, uh, how they're to do that, how they're to be assured that they can do that. And then the the rest of the chapter is really set up by the reminder uh, or the uh, verse four, which says, do not say in your heart when Yahweh has given uh, driven them out before you because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. That's said in verse four. Verse five refutes that directly. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of the wickedness of the people and the faithfulness of the Lord. If they if Israel hasn't gotten the point yet, Moses says it again in verse six. It's not because of your righteousness. And here's the punchline that really uh, sets the trajectory for the rest of the chapter, and that is you're not righteous. You're rebellious, and you've been rebellious from the beginning. You're inheriting the land not because of anything in you. You're inheriting the land because God committed himself to your fathers, and he's carrying out that promise to you, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, everything depends on that that commitment that the Lord made many centuries before. And that that reminder, you are a stiff-necked people, from that point, Moses launches into an extended treatment of the golden calf incident. And in chapter 9, that's uh, that's framed, and there's an inclusio around that section. Verse, verse 7 says, uh, you have been rebellious against the Lord uh, from the day that you left the land of Egypt until the day you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. That's the beginning of his uh, of his recounting of the uh, golden calf incident, and then there's a resumption of that or an inclusio uh, that closes that section out in verse 24. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day that I knew you. So uh, a references to Israel's rebellion against Yahweh and a reference to for the phrase from the day, from the day you left Egypt, from the day I knew you. Those two details appear in both verse seven and verse 24 and frame this whole section, which has to do with the golden calf incident. So there, there's a kind of unity to the chapter, but the chap, the story actually continues. There's another section in chapter 9, verses 25 through 29, where Moses recounts what he said to the Lord and the way he prayed before the Lord. So after this story of rebellion that ends in verse 24, fortunately, the story of rebellion is not the end of the story, uh, but the end of the, the story goes on with Moses interceding for Israel. Uh, and then the story actually, uh, the narrative actually continues on to chapter 10. Chapter 9 leaves us with a cliffhanger. Moses has gone before Yahweh, pleaded with Yahweh not to not to destroy Israel. But at the end of verse 9, we don't yet know Yahweh's a, uh, reaction to that. We don't know how he'll respond. If we haven't read the story back in Exodus, then we don't know what the Lord is going to say. And in chapter 10, verses 1 through 11, we have the Lord responding by renewing the covenant, giving Moses uh, the law again on a new set of tablets, and uh, the Lord committing again to be the, the the covenant Lord of Israel. So chapter 9 does hold together as a unit, but uh, to get the full story, we need to go in partially into chapter 10. We won't do that today. We'll be focusing on chapter 9, but keep that in mind as we go, and we might make some references to 
uh, to chapter 10. One of the ways to see this continuity through chapter 9 and into chapter 10 is to look at the different references to Moses' movements up and down Mount Sinai. As he's telling the story of the golden calf, he first of all talks about going up to the, up the mountain to receive the tablets. That's in chapter 9, verse 9. He receives the tablets on the mountain, but then when the Lord sees what's happening at the foot of the mountain, he sends Moses down from the mountain. So Moses ascends in verse 9. He descends in verse 15. Uh, then beginning in verse 10, there's another invitation to ascend the mountain, come up to the mountain with two new tablets. So Moses makes new tablets, he makes an ark to put them in, and then he ascends the mountain again in verse 3. And then uh, verses 10 and 11 talks again about Moses on the mountain, coming from the mountain with the tablets, putting them into the ark that he had made to preserve them as a sign that the Lord has has confirmed confirmed this covenant. There's a new covenant. So the up and down movement, the, the ascent and descent, that's an oversimplification of a complicated uh, of a complicated narrative, but that that gives you an idea of how the chapter moves and how chapter nine moves. Uh, the story continues to move into chapter ten. You, Moses is at the foot of the mountain at the end of chapter nine, or he's before the Lord, but the Lord is going to invite him up to the mountain again, uh, and he's going to receive the tab- tablets again. So again, the, to summarize the. Chapter 9 is a unit, but chapter 9 is part of a larger unit that continues to the 11th verse of the following chapter. Chapter 9 begins with a, uh, a hear Israel, a sh- another Shema. The verb Shema means to listen or to hear. Uh, chapter 6 famously has the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. And periodically through Deuteronomy, we have other sections that begin with that same exhortation. Listen, hear Israel. And here in chapter 9, that's an indicator, I think, that uh, chapter 9 is part of the section that began in chapter 6. It's part of that first commandment section where the Lord is uh, calling on Israel to hear his voice, to serve and worship him only, and to put no other gods before their face. After that that repetition of the Shema, uh, Moses reminds the people that they're going over into the land Uh, And I like the realism of the first couple of verses of chapter 9. The Lord Moses, speaking for the Lord, says several times, uh, you're going going in and you're going to be fighting against the odds. Uh, Nations are greater and mightier than you. They have cities that are fortified to heaven. A people great and tall. The sons of the Anakim and a people that has a reputation for ferocity, a reputation for being an unbeatable nation. You can't, you can't stand before the Anakim. So um, the Lord doesn't try to uh, whitewash the challenge of entering the land. Uh, he, tell, he reminds Israel, Moses doesn't try to whitewash it. He reminds Israel, you're going into the land. These nations are actually better than you are. And um, that means that they're going to have to trust Yahweh, of course, as verse three and following go on to say. It also means, I think, that the verb here is, uh, begins the chapter Uh, That same verb is uh, repeated in verse 2. The Anakim have a reputation. You've heard of the Anakim, Moses says, but uh, whatever you've heard of the Anakim, the main thing that you need to do is to hear what Yahweh says. We talked about this at the end of last episode, uh, listening to the voice of Yahweh or listening to another voice, that's going to determine Israel's future. And here again, we have this emphasis on, there are lots of rumors circulating about the Anakim. You might hear a lot of things about them. That should not be where your ear t- 
turns. Your ear should be turned instead to Yahweh. And if your ear is open to Yahweh, then you will do what he says. And the, the Anakim won't stand before you. And that proverb, who can stand before the sons of the Anak, is going to be reversed. And people are going to say, who can stand before Israel or who can stand before Yahweh? The description of the Lord as a consuming fire in this context might draw our mind back to chapter 4, verses 23 to 24. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The jealousy of the Lord really does seem to be an important connection with the concept of the Lord is a consuming fire. His love burns for his people, but also that jealousy is the flip side of that, the love that will not let his people go and will destroy any obstacle or any anything that would undermine his, his love and commitment to his people. And that power is one that they can trust. That love will take them into the land. It will enable them to face people that are mightier and stronger than them and more settled. And yet, on the other hand, um, it's a warning to them that that love, that jealousy is one that they should not act to oppose themselves. You might think of the way that it's brought up in the context of the second commandment. The jealousy of the Lord is one of the warnings that is given to those who would set up rivals to the love of the Lord in false idols and things like that. I wonder if at the same time it could be helpful to um, make something of connection that we've spoken about before between the fire and and the word um, and the way in which those those two things relate. I think we mentioned a, a kind of verbal connection. There's a, a bay air that um, Moses uses to expound and, and a boat air as in burning and and of course there are images elsewhere um we could think of god's word to jeremiah you know will my word not be like like fire and it it feels like um here that the the god who spoke out of a fire is gone but his word and his promises um continue and here we we get so yeah in verse three we get fire but then it, it comes up again um where are we? Verse 10 talks about how the, the um, words written on the tablet of tablets of stone were those um, spoken with you out of the midst of the fire. And you, you even get some slightly kind of odd um, or seemingly unnecessary mentions of it. Verse 15, I turned and came down from the mountain, Moses says, um, and the mountain was burning with fire. Um, and you, you get a few more uh, of those. And it, it feels like that power is is no longer tangible and and immediately visible to them, um, but but it, it is now going forth in and through God's word, and insofar as it's um, embodied in His commandments, and in fact, insofar as Israel then obey um, God's commandments, they will then have that um, uh, power kind of wielded by them as as they go forth into battle and and so on, and and that that seems to be. Um, quite apparent here i think yeah i think that's right another another prophetic example i think is isaiah 6 where isaiah has unclean lips and then he's a coal from the altar a seraph takes a coal from the altar and brings it and purges his lips but i 
it's not, I don't think it's just purging. It's, it's an ignition. He becomes a fire breather and he speaks words of fire. He becomes another seraph because he's been put on fire by the seraphim. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up the fire thread that goes through this chapter. Uh, it's, I've been puzzling over that. I don't think I have a good, uh, a solid grasp of what's going on. But uh, yeah, one of the things certainly is that uh, the word of the Lord is being linked up with the fire. But Moses is also being linked up with the fire. I mean, he disappears into the fire when the Lord sends him back down. He comes from the midst of the fire. Um, and I think back to the, the original recounting of this in Exodus 32, uh, the thing that motivates the people to start making the golden calf or the excuse that they give is, uh, we don't know what happened to this Moses. He's gone up into the mountain. He's disappeared into that cloud and fire. Uh, he's Maybe he's been consumed. Um, and there does seem to be, as we go through this, I think we'll see a number of indications that Moses, Moses going into the fire is kind of Moses throwing him into, uh, he's, he's going into a situation of risk, danger, and death. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He throws himself on the ground before the Lord. Um, and he's in the midst of a consuming fire. Uh, and then he emerges from it. So there's a kind of uh, entry into death on behalf of the people and a reemergence from death. His his emergence from the fire also feels like an apocalyptic moment. I mean, the Lord appears in uh, amidst the, you know, his burning hosts uh, when he comes uh he comes with fire, shooting his arrows of lightning and coming with thunder and lightning uh, when he comes to judge. And Moses seems to be kind of the agent of that emerging from the fire uh, here in uh, at Mount Sinai. Fire really does seem to play a very important part within the story more broadly. In Sinai, it is at Sinai, it's the prominent image in many ways, the um, whole mountain and the smoke and the fire and the um, context of chapter three, the burning bush, we can think about the way that Israel is led by fire through the wilderness. We might also think of the ways in which fire is connected with the power of the word of the Lord in the prophets, as you mentioned in Isaiah chapter six, but also elsewhere, Jeremiah, where we have the, the word of the Lord like fire within, or we have the... Um, fire from the mouth of the prophet in um, Revelation, the two witnesses you might think about um, Elijah and his connection, the connection between his word and fire. We might also think about the Pentecost theme, that fire comes down in tongues upon the heads of the disciples, giving them tongues that are fiery um, in the other sense words that burn. We might think also of the ways in which love is connected to fire. Um, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Might also think of the holiness of the Lord connected with fire. In Numbers, we have occasions when the fire of the Lord breaks out against the people, and then, of course, the offering of strange fire in Leviticus by Nadab and Abihu, which leads to fire coming out from the Lord to destroy them. And so this image of fire as something that um, purifies, as something that destroys, as something that elevates, as something that transforms. In all of these ways, and something that is connected with strength and might and light, all of these aspects of fire are brought out within 
story of the Exodus, and then more broadly in Scripture. We can also think maybe of fire at the heart of Israel's worship, the fire of the altar, the fire of the lamp, um, and the lighting of those lamps. In all of these respects, we see something of God's character, but also of the character of people who are ignited by God as prophets, as those who are priests. The priest is in some ways like the lamp within the um, within the tabernacle. The king is compared to a lamp. And in all of these ways, we see light as fire as an image of God's power, but also of the power that God can communicate to his servants. That reference to uh, Yahweh as a consuming fire in verse 3 is intended to assure Israel uh, that they'll take the land. As, as elsewhere in Deuteronomy, we have this kind of concurrence between Yahweh as the divine warrior. Uh, he will destroy and subdue the peoples of the land. Uh, and then also, he'll do that so that you may drive them out and destroy them. So there's this combination of Yahweh's work and Israel's work. They're not competing. It's Yahweh who gives them the land, and yet Israel is uh, somehow sharing in that conquest. So that that assures them. But the the warning that uh, really dominates this chapter is begin, begins in verse 4, which is the warning against uh, self-confidence based on uh, Israel's own righteousness. Don't say in your heart. It's because of my righteousness. That's in verse four. It's not because of your righteousness in verse five. No, then it's not because of your righteousness in verse six. So three times this issue comes up and Moses is refuting that. First of all, just by dismissing it, it's, that's not the issue. <laughs> it's, it's not your righteousness that d- determines what happens here. It's the wickedness of the people and the commitment the Lord made. That's what he brings out in verse five. Uh, and then, as I said before, at the beginning of the of the episode, the the key thing that Moses emphasizes through the rest of the chapter is that it can't be because of Israel's righteousness, because Israel is not righteous. The only reason why they are on the edge of the good land that he's giving is that the Abbe is giving them. The only reason they survive to get that far is because the Lord has shown mercy to them. And then he goes on for the rest of the chapter with a this uh, fairly lengthy review of the events recorded in Exodus thirty-two through thirty-four of the, uh, the rebellion with the golden calf, uh, Moses' intercession before the Lord, the, the, remake, the restoration of the covenant, uh, the giving of a second table of commandments, and so on. Covenant is broken, Moses intervenes, and the covenant is restored. And that's the reason why Israel is even in a position to enter the land. They wouldn't exist to enter the land if Moses had not intervened. There's clearly meant to be something quite... Um humbling isn't there and almost deflationary about the way in which um what god is doing in verse five is not because of their righteousness but a because of the wickedness um of the nations you know that that's why they're having this success because there's a particularly wicked group of nations um out there and b the 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 confirmation still in verse five of, of the word spoken um to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, again, we've got this kind of uh, primacy to to word and to verbal revelation underlying the whole thing. But, I mean, from our perspective as readers of the Pentateuch, it's not that long ago that um, we read about these words spoken to Abraham and Isaac, and and we've had, you know, had them brought to our attention many times um, going through the 
books, but these are kind of 400-year-old-plus words. And kind of Israel collected all sorts of um, idols and goodness knows what else during their time in Egypt. And you would think that the constant recitation of um, God's promises wouldn't have been kind of uh, as prominent as we might have liked. And and so these would have been very distant words in, in a sense to quite distant people. And it, it just, um, uh, it, it, it's quite humbling, I guess, in the same way to think that in our lives, there may be many things that we're being blessed by and having success in, which are actually things we're enjoying because of prayers made by people hundreds of years ago or kind of by decisions um made by people and, and we're sort of standing in the uh, good of them and these are just always important things to bear in mind aren't, aren't they the extent to which we're kind of being powered through um life on, on the base of part on the basis sorry of past um promises and prayers and in fact on the basis of god's uh desire to to purge evil within this passage there's also a sort of preaching of um, justification by faith alone to Israel, who in the position of having been um, enjoying all these gifts is tempted to rely upon its own status to fall into the fallacy that their success is proof that they did something right that others failed to do. And it's a very easy failure for us to fall into. We think that because we have enjoyed success, there must be some distinguishing factor between us and others within ourselves by which that success is to be explained. And yet, when we ask the question, why us, when we're the beneficiaries of some great fortune or success or favour, um, the reason, as in the case of Israel, is often to be found outside, completely outside of ourselves. And in Israel's case, the blessings that they were receiving were the blessings of God given to the unrighteous. It's not just a matter of um, the faithful receiving benefits. It's those who have been manifestly unfaithful, and yet the Lord has shown them mercy. He is the one who justifies the ungodly. And as we go through these chapters, it's interesting to see the way in which themes that we find very prominent within, for instance, the Apostle Paul, are already being preached by Moses and absolutely integral to his message to Israel. This is not some new feature of New Testament teaching. It's something that's been there all along. Uh, the basic charge against Israel in this section is uh, that they are stiff-necked. There's a number of other terms that are used. They're accused. Moses accused them of being rebellious. Uh, he accuses them of... Uh, sinning, the chata, uh, a uh, common word in Leviticus, but uh, comparatively rare in Deuteronomy, but uh, this, uh, the golden calf is characterized as a sin. Uh, but the, the charge that's repeated a number of times is that they are a stubborn or stiff-necked people. Uh, in verse 6, that said, that's Moses saying that. Later on in verse 13, uh, Yahweh says that when he sees what they're doing at the foot of the mountain, indeed, this is a stiff-necked people. As the chapter winds down, Moses refers to the people as being uh, stiff. It doesn't use the word neck, but just uses that verb uh, that uh, is used with stiff-necked. That's that's the designation that's uh, almost exclusively used 
in the Pentateuch to describe the rebellion of the, uh, at, uh, at Slanai with the golden calf. It's used several times, four times, I think, in Exodus 32 through 34. It's picked up here. Uh, there are places elsewhere in Deuteronomy, a couple places where that phrase is used, where it's not explicit that it's referring to the golden calf. But given the other uses, then it's it's possible that those are also allusions to the calf incident. The image seems to be that Israel is supposed to be like a compliant work animal for Yahweh, receive the yoke of Torah, receive the yoke of Yahweh's leadership and command, uh, and they stiffen their neck and refuse to take the yoke. Uh, they buckle, and um, they're like an uh, an untamed uh, untamed horse that uh, tries to throw off the rider. That uh, that kind of imagery seems to be there. The word stiff or stiffen, prior to its use in the golden calf incident, without without the word neck, is interestingly used to describe the way that Egyptians treat Israel at the beginning of Exodus when it talks about uh, the Egyptians treating Israel harshly. And sometimes when people are speak harshly to other people, that's the word that's being used. So the the idea seems to be, or the, there seems to be continuity there between Israel's experience in Egypt. They are treated harshly. They're treated with stiffness or hardness, and they come out of Egypt and they are a hardened people. So there's a there's a kind of dynamic where you know they've been brought out of Egypt, but Egypt is still within them. The experience of Egypt is still within them. Not not the good experience of Egypt and the Exodus, but the bad experience of being oppressed and treated harshly. Now they're treating Yahweh harshly, and they're stiffening themselves against him. Uh, and what needs to happen, of course, is that they need to be trained and purged so that that Egypt, uh, that fleshliness is purged from them so that they will, they'll be compliant. They'll love the Lord their God with all their heart, and they'll, they'll loosen their necks and accept the, the, the yoke of the Torah that he places on them. Moses begins to recount the story of the golden calf by talking about his own ascent to the mountain to receive the tablets. That begins in verse 9, and uh, he receives the tablets. He's there for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, he's fasting. Uh, it occurs to me that there's a numerical link with the wilderness, which has been mentioned. The 40 years of the wilderness has been mentioned earlier in the chapter, and the experience of the wilderness, as chapter 8 indicates, is an experience of hunger. Uh, Moses uh, on the mountain is somehow uh, ex- replicating that wilderness experience. The the time period it's a forty day time period, kind of a microcron of the forty years of wilderness wandering. He is fasting. He keeps the fast. Uh, so maybe the the if there's a parallel uh, there that he's kind of a representative Israelite, he's keeping the fast before the Lord. He's receiving the word of the Lord so that he can deliver to the people who have wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So uh, he he goes through a personal kind of wilderness experience in order to receive the tablets of stone. Of course, the, the point of this story, he's, he's recounting his reception of the, of the tablets of the 10 words, but the point of it is what happens in the aftermath. At the end of those 40 days and beginning of verse 12, Yahweh tells him to arise and descend the mountain. Uh, that uh, the, the command to arise suggests that even though he hasn't described his posture as being falling before the Lord, that's what he'll do later, falling before the Lord. Uh, but if he's being told to arise, then during this 40-year period, possibly implies that he's already he's already fallen before the Lord, he's prostrate before the Lord. This is, again, a kind of, seems to be a kind of entry into the wilderness, a kind of entry into death. He's going into the midst of the fire, 
He's uh, fasting an almost impossible length of time, and yet he uh, survives and, and comes back. So the Lord has seen what's going, what's going down there, and Moses uh, is, uh, is uh, told to go down the mountain. What's interesting here is the Lord's intention. The Lord speaks twice to Moses. One is, arise, go down. Uh, verses 13 and 14, uh, Yahweh speaks again. I've seen this people, and I'm going to destroy them. This is an Amalekite-level destruction that he's planning for Israel. I'll blot their name out from under heaven. That's what the Lord plans to do with the Amalekites after Exodus, their their attack on Israel uh, back in Exodus 17. He's going to blot out the Amalekites from under heaven, and then he's going to build a new people from Moses. So the Lord has determined that he's going to, uh, this is almost kind of a flood a pre-flood kind of field. The Lord regrets. It doesn't use that language, but you think of uh, Genesis 6. The Lord regrets redeeming Israel from Egypt. They've acted corruptly in verse 12. That is language that comes out of Genesis 6. And now a flood of judgment is coming against them. The Lord is going to wipe them out the way he wiped out the whole globe in the flood. And then he's going to start over with Moses as a kind of new Noah figure. What's interesting here, so that's an Israel's future is under threat. And what's interesting here is that Yahweh never does any of that. Uh, and I think it's because Moses doesn't give him a chance. Uh, verse 14, let me alone that I may destroy them. But Moses doesn't let him alone. And Moses kind of preempts the Lord's plan by going down the mountain, um, by breaking the tablets of stone, by burning and crushing the golden calf. Uh, and it's almost as if Moses uh, acts quickly enough so that the Lord is, uh, is again, preempted. If you take kind of a preemptive strike to remove the offense uh, and to enact the breaking of the covenant, uh, and then the Lord doesn't doesn't actually do anything at all to bring judgment. It's only Moses that uh, that brings the judgment. That's true back in Exodus also. Uh, Moses calls on the people to come and 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 make war against the worshipers of the golden calf. Um, it's not like the fire that comes out of the uh, from the from before the Lord that consumes Nadab and Abihu. It's not like the earth opening up and and swallowing Korodath and, and Abiram. Uh, this is Moses as the agent of judgment, coming down out of the midst of the fire, uh, and because he's a fiery presence in Israel, it seems that 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 um, that's kind of what satisfies the Lord's anger and pacifies the Lord's anger, uh, and Moses' actions ensure that Israel is going to have a future. The comparison with the story of the flood is also given weight by the 40 days and 40 nights, and the 40 days and 40 nights of the rain, and the 40 days and the 40 nights of Moses lying prostrate before the Lord interceding for the people. Um, there's a similarity between those. His faithfulness and intercession is that which prevents the 40 days and 40 nights, as it were, of judgment. You might also think of the way in which the crushing of the calf, burning it with fire, grinding it very small, making it as fine as dust, and then placing it upon the water, which the people are made to drink in um, Exodus, it presents a sort of um, a ritual of jealousy that is similar to the ritual of jealousy that's prescribed in Numbers chapter 5 for the woman who's suspected of adultery. Israel has been suspected of adultery because they have performed spiritual adultery. So they must drink this drink that will lead to judgment upon them 
as the Lord brings that condemnation upon them from within, as it were. We might also think of the ways in which Moses performs the judgment of the Lord in a way that stays the, the anger of the Lord. He is a faithful Israelite who is zealous for the Lord and the Levites that join with him later on. And it's similar to the story of Phineas, who stopped the plague by thrusting the spear through the um, leader of the tribe of Simeon and the um, Midianite woman. And in that situation, you have the prevention of the Lord's judgment because human judgment has, has occurred. And the logic of the law at various points, for instance, when there's been a murder and it hasn't been solved, it has that same sort of logic. Human judgment is that which prevents or protects the people from the Lord's judgment falling upon them. You might also think of the way in which Moses himself serves as something of a golden calf type figure. It's the loss of Moses that leads the people to create the golden calf as some sort of intermediary between them and the Lord that will serve as a sort of blast shield for them and the Lord's glory. They can deal with this idol instead. But Moses, whose face shines and he has even horns um, described in um, Exodus 34, is the true intermediary between them and the Lord. He's the one who can enter the fire. He's the one who can actually um, intercede for them. And in the story here, as he recalls the events, he's making very clear the, the logic that we've seen earlier on in the book as well, where he has sided with the people in their sin later on with the, the water and striking the rock when he should not have. When he's not able to stand as the intermediary, but he stands on their side rather than on the side of the Lord against them on, on occasions, he can't actually intercede for them as they need. And so the intercession that he provides here is that which enables them as a sinful and righteous people to be in the presence of the Lord without being utterly destroyed. There is this sort of protection for them. And without um, the intercession of Moses, they would have suffered the same fate as those in the day of Noah, who were destroyed from the face of the land. Alistair, a lot of this then underlines the point you made previously, doesn't it? Um, we were talking about how there's always a tendency, if we're having success in something, to say, well, why, why us? Why are we succeeding here when other people um, uh, haven't? You know, why, why us, us as opposed to someone else? And you mentioned that the um, reason is, is very often just outside of us altogether. And so we're thinking about the Lord's promises to um, Abraham in this context or the wickedness of the nations and here is it's hugely continuing that same theme isn't it the reason why israel have been preserved moses is basically saying look you you had you weren't even aware of this but i and the lord had this huge conversation about your future and he really wanted to destroy you all together kind of thing and and so it's like this this whole consultation has gone on up in the mountain, in the presence of the fire, they've had no say in it, no ability to decide, etc. And it's been this decision has been made completely out of their hands. And um, again, it, it's just very much having this um, humbling and um, uh, humbling uh, 
uh, effect, hopefully, on Israel and just emphasizing their utter dependency upon things um, outside of and, and far above their abilities. And as we read um, chapters 32 to 34 of Exodus, it's very clear that the grounds for which, upon which they are delivered from the fate that they deserve is the Lord's promise and the Lord's character and the Lord's um, name. Um, without those things, which have nothing to do with them ultimately, it's depending upon who God is and what he has promised and his reputation. It's without those things, they're lost entirely. Alistair, you mentioned the um, a trial of jealousy, the uh, the right of jealousy in Numbers 5. Um, what's interesting in this recounting of this event is that that's, uh, that's not followed through uh, in Exodus uh, Moses, Moses grinds the calf to dust, puts it in the water that's flowing from the mountain, and the people drink it. That's not mentioned in verse 21. He took the sinful thing. Actually, um, it's more direct than that. I took your sin, the calf which you had made. So it's identifying the calf with their sin, burned it with fire, crushed it, grinding it small as dust. And I threw the dust in the brook that came from the mountain. We know from Exodus that the people drank it, but here the 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 role of the of the of the the uh, uh, the brook or the river that comes from the mountain seems more to be that um, uh, it's 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 carrying away the sin. The sin has been crushed. The sin has been destroyed, and now the water is just going to flow. And I think of uh, places in uh, uh, elsewhere where the Jordan is kind of has that role in Israel that uh, you throw you throw things into the into the river so that they carry away. Uh, the water carries away the 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 uncleanness and the uh, the the uh, the stain of Israel. That that seems to be the emphasis of what's happening here. It's not that the not that the people are being exposed, but the that Moses is removing the cause of the offense, and that again leaves open the possibility that Israel will be preserved, uh, and uh, that the Lord's threat in uh, verses thirteen and fourteen. Uh, will be nullified uh, and that he won't actually carry out another flood. Um, he won't, he won't destroy Israel as he destroyed the world in the flood, but he'll preserve it. And it's because Moses has removed the, removed that, uh, that offending thing. Might also think of it as a, a returning to the cursed dust um, that we have at the very beginning of Genesis after the fall, the, serpent eats of the dust and man returns to the dust this grinding of the um, calf down to the dust is associating it with the the curse of the serpent and then to be scattered by the the water that takes it away um israel will their bod dead bodies of that generation will litter the wilderness and they are going to be scattered if to the extent that they are associated with their sin, um, but yet the Lord will um, cause them to rise up from the dust of the wilderness and enter into the land. Of course, if they return to um, their sin, they suffer the same fate as that which is returned to the dust. Um, think about the end of chapter eight and the perishing like the nations before them if they follow their pattern. 
After Moses has recounted this, the last thing he does uh, in response to the golden calf and the idolatry of Israel is to uh, throw the dust in the brook. And then verses 20 through 22 through 24 uh, are kind of interruption of the story. He's going to go on to, uh, to uh, describe the prayer that he offers before the Lord. But verses 22 through 24, before he gets to the prayer, it mentions other occasions and locations where Israel rebelled against the Lord, where Israel proved to be the rebellious son. Uh, Ralph Smith made this point in one of the episodes we had with him, that Israel is um, uh, Israel is is the rebellious son. The law of the rebellious son in Deuteronomy 21 is reflecting back on Israel's experience. Moses and Aaron are both rebellious sons. Uh, they, they they turn from the Lord, and they're, uh, Moses is excluded from the land on account of that. Um, so uh, they've been a rebellious son at, at, at Horeb, but they're also been a rebellious son at these other locations that the Lord recounts. And it looks like an intrusion. I think structurally it seems to work this way. Uh, if you look at into chapter 10, if you conclude chapter 10, chapter 9, verses 22 through 24, match up with verses 6 through 9 of chapter 10. Both of them seem to be intrusions. And then on either side, on the far side of each one, it's uh, the Lord uh, or Moses speaking to the Lord on the mountain, uh, pleading with him. And then at the center is the is the Moses prayer and the Lord's response to that prayer. So I think there's a structural reason for putting it there, but it also reinforces the theme, which is you're not inheriting the land because you're righteous. You're not righteous. You've been rebellious against the Lord, not only at Horeb, but at Tabera, a place of burning, Massa, the place of testing, Kibroth Hata'aba, which is uh, graves of craving or graves of desire. Uh, Kadesh Barnea, a place that uh, Moses already mentioned in Deuteronomy. Uh, there's a whole series of rebellions that have occurred before they've come to the plains of Moab. And in each case, the Lord might have wiped out Israel, and he didn't. And the fact that Israel is now where they are, again, is not because of anything they've done. It's not because of their righteousness, but because of the Lord's commitment to Israel and because of the wickedness of the peoples. It's interesting that the character of Aaron is particularly singled out here. Um, the Lord's anger against Aaron is not so emphasized in Exodus 32, but here he is seen as being a specific target of the Lord's anger, that he is the one who has instigated or um, enabled this rebellion. He has not served to God the people. And there is something of the character of the event of the golden calf it's a new fall event the people are um there's a sort of forbidden fruit Aaron is like the um Adamic figure who's failing to guard and to keep the garden in the absence of Moses and Moses represents the Lord who brings judgment upon the parties who have been unfaithful but Aaron um in verse 20, is saved from judgment as a result of the Lord's intercession for him. And it's, it's interesting to consider the story of Aaron in the light of the Lord's sparing of him. Um, later on, we see the way that his sons are, um, Nadal and Abihu are killed because of their offering of strange fire. And on that occasion, Aaron is silent. He recognizes the justice of the Lord's judgment. And he recognizes himself in many senses as a brand platform of burning. He was not saved by any virtue of his own. He is someone who deserved the destruction that 
Moses prayed for his deliver from which Moses prayed for his deliverance. And as we look through the story of Aaron, we can maybe have a sense of the fear and the the way he was humbled by that deliverance, that he recognized that he was a token of the Lord's mercy, um, that he deserved the destruction that everyone else around him was experiencing. Yeah, that's good. I, I mentioned before that uh, it seems that Moses goes through a kind of death experience and, and rises again to return in judgment from the mountain. Uh, obvious, obvious. We can we could spin out typological implications of that, but it it it's also it seems also the case, Alistair, given what you've just said, that you have uh, uh, Aaron goes through the same kind of thing. He's got a threat of death. The Lord is angry with him, but because of the intercession of Moses, Aaron is preserved and Aaron has a future. Uh, Israel goes through a death and resurrection. They're about to be wiped out as the Amalekites are going to be wiped out. But because of Moses' action, because of Moses' prayer, Israel is spared. So the death and resurrection of Moses, as it were, becomes the basis for the death and resurrection of uh, Aaron and and the priesthood uh, and the death and resurrection of Israel. The only thing that gives any of them a future uh, is the Lord's mercy and and the, that that future is mediated through Moses and his intercession before the Lord. I'm struck here by the uh, importance and kind of underlying significance of union with God's leaders here and kind of union with a figure who has found favour in God's eyes and who has found grace in some way. And so we thought about the flood and there it's very evident kind of destruction is pronounced, but Noah finds Grace and it's so evident throughout the flood narrative. I think there's an article um, about this in um, uh, on Theopolis's website. Actually, the way in which it's that which is with Noah that's saved, and it's really emphatic in Hebrew. The way in which certain things are with him, and Noah takes the people to be with him, and his sons, and brings in the dove to be with him, and it's by association with Noah that anything makes it through the flood. And there are similar associations with. Um, Jericho destruction is um, pronounced on the city and it's very emphatic the way in which it is that which is with Rahab that's going to be saved and her household and and what belongs to her and with the same kind of Hebrew um, phrases and and here it's so similar isn't it kind of um, Israel is really pronounced it's it's going to be over and it's by Moses associating himself with Israel that she then has some sort of um, future and very often I, I think there are kind of caricatures of the doctrine of substitutionary um, atonement and particularly of imputed righteousness and the way in which kind of righteousness can't be this um, substance that kind of I don't know, that floats across the room like a gas and is then credited to um, someone else and I think Kind of thinking about the Old Testament grounding of that doctrine to, can help get rid of lots of those um, caricatures, you know, just as it is literal association with Moses, him being there amidst the people that preserves them. So it's union with Christ um, that kind of grounds our uh, righteousness in him, our life with him, everything that we have um 
with him. And I think it's easy to think of Moses's words now going back to Exodus 32, uh, you know, blot me out of your book, um, uh, oh Lord. But if you won't do that, then then kind of um, preserve your your people. We, we can think of them as a, an offer that God hasn't um, accepted. And yet, in a very real sense, he, he has. You know, Moses is blotted out of God's um, book. He, he does die along with um, a, a, a kind of sinful generation out in the plains of Moab, outside of Israel, outside of the promises. God takes up um, that offer, um, if you like, as Moses is left behind, um, and yet a, uh, a renewed generation and uh, um, uh, a resurrected generation is going to um enter the promised land ultimately and and through union with moses yeah that's very good and uh, the i mean good new testament confirmation or proof of that in first uh, corinthians 10 the exodus passage through the water is a baptism into moses in the cloud and in the sea we don't often extend that or even um think about the implications of that but what you just said james i think uh, uh fills that out what does it mean for israel to be united to Moses in the Exodus, that means that Moses' intercession is, if they're with Moses and Moses is screening them, as it were, then they have a future. And if they stick with Moses and they and they are um, follow the words of Moses, then they have a future. The flip side of that, of course, is what you also pointed out is a kind of incarnational move that Moses, by his own sin, is identified with the people. And uh, he, he's excluded. He suffers the fate that they did. So you don't have you don't have the same kind of dynamic of an innocent sufferer that you have with the new Moses, the greater Moses, but you have some of the similar dynamics. That's that's really helpful. And I think you're exactly right that it's union with that covenant head that's the basis for the Lord's acknowledgement and judgment of people, uh, of his people as righteous. The, the basis of that pronouncement of justification is that they are in Christ, or in this case, that they are in Moses and under his under his umbrella, his protection. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.